We're going to pray and we're going to open up God's word today. So let's uh, just join me in praying. Agree with me, please, for the preaching of the word in this place. Lord, we know that throughout the world today, there are many, many, many pulpits filled by pastors who love your word and honor your word and humble themselves before your word, and they proclaim it this day. And when I woke up this morning and flipped on the TV, the first thing I saw was Dr. Charles Stanley. And that man always touches my heart because he's, he's grown so old, and yet he is so consistent and faithful in preaching the word of God. And, and it just reminds me of all the, the people, the men and women throughout the years that have been faithful to preach your word and stick to it, even with all the changing tides and, and popular notions around us, they just stick with the word of God. And that's what we intend to do this morning in this place, and we seek the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we know your word does not need the anointing, but my preaching does. I'm, I'm just a, um, a weak vessel. I'm just somebody that you have entrusted with it to, to feed the flock. And so I pray for that anointing today so that your powerful word can do its intended work in the hearts of everybody that is listening or watching today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, having left the Advent and Christmas seasons, we now return to our series on, I hope you remember, First Peter. I hope it hasn't been so long that you've forgotten that. I think we have four to five messages left. And you say, well, how can you think? Well, it's probably because this week I set out to, to finish out the message for today, and I decided, you know what, there's too much here. They don't want to stay that long. So I split it up and took one message and turned it into two this week. And that's why I'm never always sure how many are be left, because suddenly I can get a fresh idea and think, you know, we need to break it up or do it differently. So I think four to five messages left, including today. And as we all know by now, I hope, 1 Peter is a book about, let me hear it from your lips, about what? Suffering, that's right. Today's passage draws a different lesson about suffering. So join me now in paying attention to the Word of God from 1 Peter chapter 4, just the first three verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The major thrust of this passage is that suffering can help reduce or subdue the flesh. And it does this by causing us to die to our flesh so that the life of Jesus may be birthed in us. That's how it's supposed to work. Now today, living in America, there is a whole lot of talk about the Second Amendment. And 2020 was a record year for buying firearms in the United States, with 18.6 million being sold as of the end of October alone. And quite a few people are taking concealed carry classes, and I'm sure that almost everybody here knows somebody that is taking or has taken a concealed carry class so that they can get a concealed carry permit. Who you voted for? in the presidential election in the beginning of November might have been influenced by where the candidates stood on the Second Amendment. Well, what does the Bible say about bearing arms? It says right here in this text, we should arm ourselves. Talking not about guns, of course, but talking about a higher form of weaponry. Where Peter starts out, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, and repeat it, with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Even though Jesus was sinless, he knew that he would have to suffer. 
He knew that laying the glory of heaven behind, as Philippians 2 describes in the great kenosis, as it's called, the great emptying, as it's called, he emptied himself. He knew that coming to earth would entail more than a little bit of suffering. How did he suffer? Well, the cross, of course, is the obvious. That's the, that's the biggie. That's the major way he suffered. But also he suffered because he was not recognized for who he was. He suffered when he was not appreciated, when he was not thanked for the good that he was performing. He suffered when he was mocked, taunted, and not thanked. He, was, he suffered when he was falsely accused. He suffered when they were about to push him off a cliff, and somehow miraculously he walked through the crowd and disappeared. He suffered when he was, as the Bible says, Tempted in all ways as we are. You and I know what it's like to be tempted. Nobody here doesn't know the pull of temptation. And the Bible says that Jesus was tempted just like we are. But the big difference is he never sinned. He also got tired. He went away by himself sometimes to, to pray. The crowds would follow him. He would get away by himself. Um, you know, Christians love to argue, sadly. You know, one of the things they argue over is, could Jesus catch the common cold? Could he get the flu? And some people say, well, absolutely not, because he was God, he couldn't get sick. Other people say, well, he was fully man, he was fully in the flesh, so he could. I'm not here today to even approach that, 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 that question, but I raise it because it does come up. People like to argue about it. I would say it's probably not worth arguing about. Um, stick with probably the bigger issues in the scripture, not whether or not Jesus could catch a cold. But I do hear it arising sometimes, so I thought, well, this is a good, good point as any to, to mention it. And I don't know the answer, okay? Um, don't tell me later you know the answer, unless you have a chapter and a verse in the Bible. Our text is saying that if Jesus suffered, we should expect suffering too. He was the spotless Lamb of God, and yet he suffered. And Peter says, Arm yourself with this same mindset. And if we have our hearts set on following Christ, even if we don't look for suffering, it will find us. It will find us. Who can't say amen to it will find us? Anybody here not suffered? I think not. To arm ourselves with this mindset means to ready ourselves with it. Out of curiosity, I was looking at some other versions, um, probably about six different versions, to see how other versions might have expressed arm yourselves. Every last version I looked at in English said, arm yourselves. Um, nobody had a different way of saying it, so I would say it's pretty clear. It means ready yourself, arm yourself, prepare yourself with this mindset that if the Son of God suffered, you and I too will suffer. Um, I'm going to throw in something here about depression. This is not a sermon about depression, but I thought this is as good a place as any for me to throw in one of my, one of my personal um, um, observations about depression. I believe that most, not all, mind you, not all, but I think most depression, at least common depression, is caused by unmet expectations. You think life is going to look a certain way, and it doesn't. You get down. You thought your Christmas was going to look a certain way, but it didn't, so you feel let down. You thought yesterday afternoon, whatever you had planned was going to turn out a certain way, and it didn't, and so you feel depressed. Christmas this year was a bit difficult for me because of Beth's broken hip. I thought everything was going to look a certain way. You know, we knew where and how we were going to celebrate Christmas. We, you know, I knew what it was going to look like in my head because the plans were made and it always unfolds this way. And yet, everything suddenly changed a few days before Christmas. And yes, it did make me feel down. I used the word depression. Not publicly, I knew I'm feeling depressed because I thought it was going to look like this and it doesn't. It looks like this. I believe 
the connection here with 1 Peter is Peter's actually letting us know to expect suffering, to expect that things are often not going to look like we build it up in our heads. Whether it's your entire life, you thought you were going to get you know, apples and you got pears instead, or whether it's last week and how Christmas turned out or what you did New Year's Eve or, or what you thought was going to happen at work. And whether it's huge or small, I think Peter's trying to say it isn't going to always turn out the way you think. And maybe he'd even say it's often not going to turn out the way you think. And I happen to think that's what leads to probably most common depression, unmet expectations. I'll leave it at that. Don't keep asking, why is this happening to me? Why is God allowing this? Now, if I can go back to um, my wife's broken hip. This provides all kinds of wonderful illustrations. She's going like this right now, shaking her hip. Um, leading up to Beth falling two Sundays ago, um, there were so many providential things that God was doing and already putting into place before we knew what was going to happen. And you might laugh at these. You might say, well, that's kind of silly. Well, so be it. You can think it's silly, but I can tell you it's been in my heart. One is she had just gone food shopping, and the refrigerator was full. My fridge isn't always full. Sometimes we're missing half and half for the coffee. or we're missing. Well, right after she fell, and she's in the hospital, and I opened the door of the fridge, it is packed. Like, I, I don't have to make, go, make a trip to the grocery store. I don't ask her, everything is here. When did she go shopping? I have no idea. I don't remember her going shopping. I usually know when she goes shopping. It was almost like she, like an angel did my shopping. All I know is the fridge is full, and I wasn't expecting it to be full. And I thought, thank you, Lord. A little thing, but I see God's hand. She decided a month ago, she announces to me, all of you who are married, know that your wife announces things to you. There are things that are non-negotiables. <laughs> you know, there's things that <laughs> negotiables. <laughs> there's things that, that my wife announces to me. I know this is not a, uh, there's no, don't discuss this. Just, uh, and all the couples said amen. Um, she announces to me, we're not going to have a Christmas tree this year. Well, we always have a Christmas tree. In the last few years, we've had a nice real Christmas tree and all that. And we got grandkids around, so I'm thinking, why wouldn't we have a Christmas tree? But she said, I thought we wouldn't have one this year. I said, fine. So she put up a, a little one instead. But once she fell and broke her hip, I'm thinking, I'm so glad we don't have a Christmas tree because I don't have to put it away now. That's not me. It really isn't. I'm not, that just doesn't excite me that I got to put the Christmas, I got to get the boxes out, put the ornaments away. That's not me. She always does that. I don't help her decorate it. We don't play Christmas carols and drink hot chocolate while we hang ornaments. Maybe she does while she's hanging the ornaments and I'm somewhere else. I don't get into that. I'm sorry if that disappoints you. I'm busy doing other worthy things. I just don't get into that. Um, I just simply don't. I'm sorry if that lets you down. But I was so glad that we didn't have a Christmas tree that I had to put away. I'm thinking, okay, Lord, you knew all this was going to happen, and I don't have a Christmas tree. Last Sunday, of course, this is following her surgery and all, um, Beth says to me, Sunday afternoon, I wish I had some beef soup. Nothing really thick, but just I just wish I had some beef soup. Well, like I always do, I thought, oh, uh-huh, and went on what I was doing. <laughs> the next day, I went to my side job in Lake Forest, and the lady, main, one of the main ladies I work for said, George, before you leave today, I have some beef soup for you to take home. I said, really, beef soup? She said, yeah, but it's not too thick. And quite frankly, this stuff happens to me all the time. It really does. So you know that. It really does. I just feel like, I just feel like God's with me every step of the way, no matter what's going on. I mean, he hears her simple request for beef soup. He knows I'm not going to go make beef soup. I'm probably not going to go to the store and buy beef soup because the fridge is full. It's like, why would I? Um, and yet he works providentially. But then, and I know you'll appreciate this, I'm thinking to myself, Lord, you're so providential. You, 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 you didn't have a Christmas tree. That was your hand. The fridge is full. That was your hand. 
Beth wants beef soup, and I have beef soup. That's your hand. If you're so providential, why didn't you prevent her fall? Now, I don't spend time thinking about that, and it's not like I'm shaking my fist at him, but the thought goes through my head, and I say it because I know the thought goes through your head too, and I like to be very honest from up here, not act like you know somehow we live in a bubble. I mean, we have those thoughts. Well, God, if you're so good and so providential, why didn't you simply keep her from falling so we wouldn't have to go through this at all? So do you see how easy it is to, to adopt an expectation that we're not going to have to suffer, suffer, nothing bad is going to happen, everything's going to look a certain way. It's really easy to just live that way, wrongly live that way, because the scripture doesn't teach it, but it's really easy to just kind of slip into that. Hence the importance of Peter saying, arm yourself with the same attitude that if Jesus suffered, you are going to suffer. When Jesus suffered in the garden of Gethsemane, he asked that the cup of suffering be taken away from him if it was God's will. But he didn't ask why God was allowing it. He just said, Lord, if there's any way, I don't have to go through this. I'd like to skip it if it's your will, but if it is your will, fine, I'll do it. I can only think of one time, maybe you can think of others, I, I can't, when our Savior asked why. I like to only one time when he said, why? And that was when he was on the cross. And he said, why, oh, why have you forsaken me? Father, why, oh, why have you forsaken me? I like to tease John back there. Now, this should not go out online, but I'm going to say it anyway. But John has a, um, John and Amma have a black Honda Odyssey, and their license plate has three letters on it, and they're all Y's. And I tease him like, John, that's the perfect license plate for you. Why? 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 As you consider your life. He never laughs when I say that. He's probably not laughing now. But it's like, that's perfect for John. Why? 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 But Jesus never asked that question, except that once when he was hanging on the cross, when the Father had turned his face away because he was bearing our iniquities. So instead of us asking why all the time? Why did you allow this? Why did this happen? Why do I have to go through this? Why can't my life look differently? Why isn't it turning out the way I thought it would? Instead, let's remind ourselves that Christ suffered, and we who follow in his stead will also suffer. And that doesn't mean we go look for suffering. People that go look for suffering are sick. Doesn't mean leave and try to try to conjure up something. Look for no, don't go look for it. But when it finds you, arm yourself with the same attitude, okay? But don't waste a lot of time saying why? Why did you allow this? Why did you? That's probably a waste of time. Jesus didn't do that. So I suggest we don't either. When we arm ourselves with that same attitude as Jesus, we are arming ourselves against getting stuck on the why, why, why. Jesus knew that he would suffer for his faith, and we can accept that same attitude. If a sinless Jesus suffered, why should we expect a pain-free life? Suffering doesn't mean that God is punishing us or that we must have done something wrong. There must be something he's displeased with. Therefore, he opened the door to suffering. It does mean it does mean that we are participating in the sufferings of Christ. And that is scriptural. We are participating in the sufferings of our Savior. So we have very, very good company when we suffer. Um, whether it's the, the Savior, whether it's the saints of old, the saints that we read about in the history books, whether it's present-day saints, we have very good com um, company. And in case you don't know, the word saint simply means a believer in Christ. Don't read into it with some denominations, how they define it, because that really isn't how the Bible is. The Bible defines that those that are, are, are saved, those that are believers in Jesus, are saints. I trust I'm looking at most, if not all, saints in this room today. If you've trusted Christ, you are a saint. Um, so saints suffer. 
You have good company when you suffer. You're not alone. According to our text, there's an important benefit that comes from suffering. Um, this is, I guess, starts to the second, second part of verse 1. For who, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So suffering for our faith does not make us more worthy to God. It doesn't make us more acceptable to God. But it does say, and this is really interesting to think about, that when we have suffered in the flesh, we will cease to sin. What on earth does that mean? It doesn't mean that after you've suffered, you're never going to sin again. We know that's not true, right? We all, all know that. But what does it mean? Well, it means that when we suffer well, it will produce a willingness in us to follow the cause of Christ and to leave behind a lifestyle of sin, no longer governed by fleshly desire, by sinful human desire, but rather controlled by the will of God. That's the, that's the appropriate result of suffering. When we suffer well, it leads towards that, to being free from that governing, being governed by the sinful flesh, almost feeling powerless against it, being finished with it, being done with it, and living much more righteously for Jesus. Suffering helps to tame the flesh. That's what Peter is saying, that it has that effect. It's supposed to have that effect. Now, some will, as you well know, allow suffering to drive them away from God. Personally, one of the things I try to ward off, just being real here, I don't want to become a bitter old man. And yet I always feel like it's knocking at the door. Can I be that real? That it's like I could become a bitter old man. I don't want to become a bitter old man. I don't think that's what, what God, Jesus, saved me for. I don't think there's any necessity for me to become a bitter old man. But it's, there's always a knock. You know how that works. You know, you open the door a crack, a little bit comes in, a little bit more, a little more, a little more, and all of a sudden you wake up one day and everybody knows, you might be the last one to find out, that you're a bitter old man. I, for one, do not want that to happen. I really don't. Pray before me if you want. Because it, it slips in. You know, when we don't suffer well, it slips in, and one day we wake up and everybody knows what we have become. Okay, lose my place here. <clears throat> Instead of allowing suffering to make us a, a bitter old man or woman, um, we can allow it to do the opposite. It can serve to purify us. And this is an idea that Peter mentioned in chapter 1. If I can reread something from four chapters ago. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials. And don't forget when it says little while, that's talking about relative to eternity. You know, some people's little while is their entire life on earth. Some people's little while is a bad year or a bad five years or ten years. Some people it's the whole life. But compared to eternity, it is a little while. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible often uses the word flesh to refer to our sinful nature. And our sinful nature, your sinful nature, pulls us towards every kind of sin. Every kind of sin from greed to unrighteous anger to lust, to self-righteousness, to looking down on others, to cursing, to immorality, to perversion, 
to stealing, to lying, etc. That's what our flesh is always trying to pull us towards, and no human being is exempt. The Son of Man was because he was fully God, but the rest of us, there's no exemptions. Our flesh is always trying to pull us towards all those things in their full ugliness. And people who have not learned from suffering will often live like unregenerate people. And they will live the way Peter describes in our text for the day, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Strong words, but that's what the Scripture is saying. Suffering is a very useful tool in helping believers to not become slaves or be slaves to those sinful inclinations. It it has a way of diminishing those raging passions. Now, this is a simple illustration I'm going to give you, um, but I think it's a a very um, sufficient illustration for for the point we're trying to make here. There once was a a man in our church um, who was a very, very beloved member of our church. I mean, he was... you knew when he was here, okay? He wasn't, wasn't quiet. You knew when he was here, and everybody loved him dearly. He had one um, very obvious fault, shall we say, and that's that he smoked. And he smoked all the time, and everybody knew that he smoked all the time. If you went on a men's retreat with him, he'd have his cigarettes with him. He'd go out in the, outside the cabin sometimes and, and have a smoke. And I would... Um, once in a while, frank, thankfully it wasn't often, but once in a while, somebody in the church, and I think this speaks well to our church, it was once in a while, but somebody would come to me and say, Pastor George, you know he smokes. I said, well, yeah, I know he smokes, it's obvious, you know. Well, I think you need to speak to him. And I said, I'm not going to speak to him. Um, the point at which God gets ready to address that, God will take care of it. He knows he smokes. I know he smokes. He knows it's not good for him. Me pointing out to him something he already knows, is not going to help anything, right? How's that going to help anything? I'm going to make it worse, probably. And then I think to myself, that the person that wants to come to me and point out his flaw, I think, well, what's in your heart? I don't know what you do in your private time. I don't know what's going on. And so I'm supposed to go point out that man smoking when who knows? what you're doing secretly and privately. So I am not going to be that kind of pastor that goes around pointing out obvious things that we all know anyway. I don't think it helps. I think it comes from kind of a self-righteous pride, not a a really loving one another. And when it comes to things like that, like his smoking, I figured sooner or later, he'll be done with it. And that's exactly what happened. Um, He kept landing in the hospital, and one day he landed in the hospital once again, with a very serious bout of pneumonia. Um, he was probably the only person I've ever seen live in a hospital with pneumonia was so bad that the nurses would pummel his back to try to loosen stuff. I mean, he'd get beat up by a nurse, and he went through that. And that hospital visit, he stopped smoking. And it wasn't a battle for him. It wasn't like he had to keep struggling. He was done. You know, I go to visit him. He says, well, George, I finished smoking. And he had. Um, and, and that's how God deals with us. We don't have to go around pointing out each other's flaws that we all know anyway. Um, and sometimes in the scheme of things, God's dealing with other more important things before he gets around to the lesser important. God was probably doing other more important things in this man's life before he got around, okay, now it's time to address the, the smoking. And, and it was dealt with just like that. In the same way, Our suffering, when we suffer well, it can help us be done with the things of the flesh, where we're just done with them. Things that we once seemed felt powerless against, okay, we're just done with it. And that's one of the benefits, that's one of the things that Peter is saying should result from suffering well. I have known people, and you probably have too, who just through through sickness or through some other severe suffering, have reprioritized their life. When they couldn't seem to reprioritize before, all of a sudden because of 
of some form of suffering they went through, they put, put everything in order. And they, they got things set the way they're supposed to be. And that's what Peter is saying to us. That's one of the good results of suffering well, is it helps you be done with those sins of the flesh and, and get things on track the way we all know they should be anyway. I have a friend who, many years ago, and I will not mention this person's name. Some of you in this room would know who he is. He actually has preached in our church sometime in the past. But early on in his life, he had a horrendous drinking problem, an anger problem. He almost destroyed his family with his, his alcoholism. But at some point, he hit bottom. And the suffering that he went through did its work. And he went on to become quite a leader in Christ's church. And if I mentioned to you today his name, and some of you here know him, you would think it couldn't be true. You would never believe that that person was once a raging alcoholic and almost lost his, his wife and kid. You wouldn't believe it because you only know him as the person he is today, the great leader in God's church. But going through that, hitting bottom, transformed him. God used that, thankfully, to set his life in order so that he kept his wife, he kept his kids, and went on to serve God's church in a very, very excellent, powerful way. So suffering can transform us. It can make old bad habits lose their hold. Don't take that as an absolute, because you can choose to just become old and bitter instead and just whatever. But it is the plan and desire of God. That's what Peter is saying. The plan and desire of God is that suffering leads towards ceasing from the sins of the flesh. That's the goal. That's the plan. That's the expected end of of the testing that suffering is. Some people are not tenderized by sufferings, but they harden themselves. And that's really too bad. And I have this image in my mind of my wife tenderizing steak. You know what tenderizing steak is? My mom always had this big wooden hammer with this like aluminum grid on the end with these points, and she'd hammer it. Um, Beth has this thing that has like knife blades in it, and when you, it's like a big rubber stamp, kind of. When you push it down, the blades all come out, and they cut into the meat. Well, that's, that's how suffering is supposed to affect us. It's a testing, and it's supposed to tenderize us, make us more holy. Some people are temporarily softened by suffering. You know, it works in the short term, but they have a short memory. And before you know it, they're right back to all those sins of the flesh. The goal is to not let it be short-term. Don't forget the lessons, but move on with the lesson having been learned. Suffering is actually a form of discipline. We know from the book of Hebrews that um, God does discipline us. Um, suffering is a form of God's discipline. And Hebrews says that, that God only disciplines the ones who are truly his children. Just like the only kids I discipline are my own children when they were little. And, and yes, I will discipline the grandkids, but a little bit with more reserve because there's a parent you don't want to offend, right? I don't discipline anybody else's kids. It doesn't work well. God doesn't discipline kids that aren't his. He disciplines the ones that are his sons, the ones that are his daughters. He will discipline because he loves you that much. It is for discipline that you have to endure, Hebrews 12. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. There's that, so we can share in his holiness. See it? That's the connection. You're made holy by the suffering. You cease from sin. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Not everybody is trained, not everybody submits to it. Some people balk at it. They balk at it till God says, I'm done with you. You want to be stubborn, rebellious? Go your own way. Maybe you have to learn the harder way. But those who have been trained by it, it yields a harvest of righteousness and peace. So God uses suffering like discipline. It is God's will that suffering will yield the fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 2, for it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make, catch this, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. So this is one of those head-scratching scriptures. It is saying the Son of Man was made perfect by suffering, and we want to say, wait a minute, wasn't he perfect already? How could he become perfect? Wasn't he already the sinless, perfect Son of God? Well, of course he was. It was not to be interpreted as though Jesus was not perfect before. He was sinful, and he became sinless by suffering. Rather, there was something about his sufferings that completed, if you will, the work of making him the perfect Lamb of God. Um, The way I would understand it is until we are tested, you never really know what you are. You can talk big. I can talk big. It's when you're tested. That's when you find out. When there's a crisis, that's when you find out what you're really made of, where your faith is, if you have faith, where you turn, who you turn to, What's important to you? And so I think Jesus, even though he obviously was perfect from eternity, he went through testings and proved and completed that, yes, even under testing, he is perfect. He is sinless. He's able to be the spotless Lamb of God. That would be my understanding of it. God's desire is that the discipline of suffering causes us to trust him more. There's a direct relationship between trusting God and avoiding the sins of the flesh. And you say, well, what's the connection there? I don't get it. I'm about to tell you. Catch this. This is one of these little nuggets you can pick up from Pastor George, okay? Anytime we participate in a sin of the flesh, we are saying, God is not enough for me. I need something else. Now, think about your own sins of the flesh, the things that you yield to, the things you struggle with. Maybe they're public, maybe they're private. I'm just saying that when you indulge in that, when you say, I can't fight, I'm doing it, at that point you're saying, God is not enough for me at this point. I need something else. And so you indulge. Um, So that's the connection between Trusting God and avoiding sins of the flesh. Accepting the discipline of suffering will not give us sinless perfection, but it will go a long ways towards making us so that we're not dominated by or governed by fleshly desires. Again, we've seen this in a lot of Christians who have gone through the fires of suffering. They can be very kingdom-minded, because the world has lost its draw for them, because they've gone through the furnace, they've gone through the fires, and they've come out on the other side feeling like the world just is not everything to me anymore. What I need is Christ. I need Jesus. He is my everything. There is a wisdom, there is a contentment, and a heavenly-mindedness that comes from successfully graduating from a class in suffering. Maybe that's why the Bible says, and this is an interesting little verse that's probably little known unless you take time to read through your whole Bible and read all the books, but it says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. 
Think about that. There's more wisdom to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Now, what, what does that mean? I can illustrate it. It's easier to share the gospel at a funeral service than it ever is at a wedding. Funeral service, you've got an audience that is confronted with the reality of death. There might be a casket in front of the room during the funeral service. There might be an urn with ashes. But everybody's confronted with death. And they're ready to hear wisdom. They're ready to hear what a pastor says. And so I always make it a point to share the gospel at a funeral because people are more open. It's a house of mourning. They're more open. Go to a wedding. Happy couples getting married. You know, everything is just perfect. It's their special day. And the pastor, Pastor George, is all set. And Pastor George wants to share a 10-minute sermon. And you almost feel a lot of times like, do you really have to preach? <laughs> and sometimes when I share my 10-minute sermonette at a wedding, I just sense from the audience, they're just kind of, will this guy get over with this soon, please? Um, you know, we're here for the wedding, we're here for the party, we're here for the alcohol, whatever. And even the bride and groom can kind of look like, you know, come on, all right already, you know? It just proves what the Scripture says. There's more wisdom in the house of mourning than there is in a house of feasting. Whenever I've gone to the bedside of somebody in the hospital and offered to pray with them, I don't think I've ever had somebody say, no, don't do that. <laughs> They're only too glad, oh yeah, would you please pray, to have you take their hand and pray with them. And yet you go to a big party, a you know, graduation party, and say, well, let's all have a time of prayer. You know the response. It'd be awkwardness, uncomfortable. Well, you know, okay, I guess if you have to kind of thing. Um, there's more wisdom in a house of mourning than there is in a house of feasting. So suffering can naturally cause us to focus on what's really important instead of all the other stuff that, if I use that word allure that I used a few weeks ago, it just pulls at us from the world and draws us and seems like candy in a candy store to a kid, and yet doesn't really, really satisfy. Throughout church history, there have always been those who have attempted to master their passions, their fleshly passions, by denying themselves. And one of the most notable in church history is Simeon the Stylite from the 4th century. He developed such a zeal in his youth for being a Christian that he began to fast and deny himself, and he entered a monastery before he even reached 16 years of age. And on one occasion, he decided to undergo such a severe fast for the season of Lent that the head of the monastery visited him and left him some bread and water. He wasn't eating even bread. He wasn't even drinking water. But Simeon refused to even touch the bread and the water and was found unconscious later. Then it was discovered that he had bound his waist with a girdle made of palm fronds, and he, he bound it so tight that it took days of soaking to remove the fibers from the wound. And at this point, the monastery had had enough of him, and they asked him to leave. He then shut himself up for a year and a half in a hut where he passed the whole season of Lent without eating or drinking. And when he emerged from the hut, um, his achievement was hailed as a miracle. It's a miracle. He later took to continually standing upright um, as long as his limbs would, would hold him. When he'd finally fall over, he was dumb. He would just stand in one position upright until he finally couldn't do it any longer. Next, he saw a rocky cliff, and he remained there in a narrow crevice, a narrow space, not a crevice, less than 20 meters in diameter, just, just holding himself up in this crevice. Um, and crowds of pilgrims, of course they did, sought him out to behold this, this holy man. Um, and that troubled him because it didn't leave him the proper time for his devotions. So then he adopted a new way of life. He sat on top of a pillar. 
because he figured if I sit on top of a pillar, then I can't yield to any weakness of the flesh. I'll just have to stay up here, and I'll finally have my flesh subdued. It'll be under control. That's why he's commonly known as Simeon the flagpole sitter. He would just sit on top of a pillar. Now, there have been others throughout church history who have tried to gain mastery of their flesh, um, living as monks or living as nuns, cloistering themselves up into, into groups, um, even not talking. I visited a, um, um, a monastery-type place once. Um, I guess they call it an abbey, um, where it was filled with lots of young men, young adult men, and they didn't talk. You walk through their, their dinner room, and all these young men, they're normal in every way. There's normal young men, and yet there's not a word being spoken. Just sitting there quietly eating, um, hoping that somehow this will subdue the fleshly pulls. Um, some adopt celibate lifestyles. And even though they're not given to that naturally, God's not given that gift of celibacy. I do believe it's a gift. They decide, well, I'm just going to live that way and try to deny natural desires and urges. Um, there have been communities where they would only baptize people who are virgins, as though somehow if you're not a virgin, then somehow you're, you know, you're less holy, you're less righteous in God's sight. Some go so far as to practice self-destruction, taking the attitude that I'm, I'm killing the flesh because it's killing me. Beth and I knew a young man in the Bible school that we attended in California. The only person I ever knew firsthand that actually kind of adopted this idea of if he beat his flesh hard enough, then he wouldn't sin anymore. And he refused to shower with, with hot water. He thought that was, you know, his cold showers was more appropriate for him. He should deny himself. And, and he just kept going further and further into these extreme behaviors until... He was asked to leave. So why do I even bring all this up? The Bible says, plainly, that self-imposed suffering has no value in restraining the passions of the flesh. Let me say it again. When you just impose suffering upon yourself as, well, I'm going to punish myself, then I'll be done with the flesh, the Bible says there's no value. It will not restrain your flesh. So don't sit on pillars. Don't turn off the hot water heater today. Don't put yourself in a crevice of a cliff and stay there hoping then I won't sin. I won't be able to sin. Because if anything, self-inflicted suffering can actually arouse the flesh. Because you're thinking of the very things that you're trying not to do. I would say to you that self-imposed suffering is like caging up a lion. You can cage a lion, but it's still a lion. It hasn't done anything to diminish its lionhood. So what does the Bible say specifically about this? If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teaching. He's speaking against... Um, a legalistic approach to being a Christian, as though Christianity um, consists of just don't do this, don't do that, you have to do that. Paul says to the Colossians, why are you doing that? And then he goes on, catch this. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of... No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Don't become one of those believers that thinks you've got to impose suffering upon yourself because then you will subdue the flesh. The Bible itself says it won't work. It won't work. What does work is what Peter is saying, what we've been emphasizing this morning. He's not talking about self-imposed suffering. He's not saying that you won't give in to the sins of the flesh if you've suffered enough um, with self-imposed suffering. He's not telling us to cut ourselves. He's not telling us to go without sleep. He's not telling us to shower with cold water and uh, live with no heat in our house. He's not suggesting that suffering will automatically 
give us power over sin. But he is teaching, this is the crux of the issue, that when suffering comes our way, when it shows up at our door, it will help us join in the crucifixion of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can be resurrected in us. So we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and just as Christ has raised a new life, we too will rise to new life. And that hold that the sinful flesh has on us begins to release its hold, and we endure suffering with the same mindset that Christ Jesus himself did. I want to close with this scripture from Galatians 2. Um, This would be in a list of probably the first five scriptures I've ever memorized in my life. Um, I had one of these little, I don't know if they'll have another, they would put up in the navigators. It was like a little card file with scriptures on it. And they were were really little cards, like that big. And they were useful for scripture memorization. This was one of the very first ones. In fact, this is the first one I remember learning from that little navigators file. It's from Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll um, continue. Father, we um, thank you for this powerful word that Peter spoke to us. We look at just three simple verses. And yet as we unpack them, they speak so strongly to us of, of accepting suffering when it comes, not looking for it, but accepting it, and enduring it as Christ Jesus did. And they speak so powerfully to us of the effect that you desire suffering to have. You don't desire for it to break us. You don't desire it would um, make us bitter old people. You don't desire that it would make us negative all the time. But you desire that the life of Christ would come forth from us and that we would be done with sin and be done with the sinful flesh governing, almost seemingly controlling us instead of us being able to live for Christ every day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. May you help us to walk in them and not to resist the plain teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.